0: you're tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. During the pandemic shutdown, it was forecast that timeshares would rebound the fastest in the hospitality sector. Traditionally, that's been the case, and the road to recovery did not disappoint. We had the chance to talk to Jason Gamble, who is president and CEO of the American Resort Development Association, often referred to as ARDA. The notes from the field include a rebound across the state. Here's Gamble.
1: I would say, almost through every economic downturn, every natural disaster, or even horrific events of September 11th. We find that the timeshare industry tends to bounce back the fastest. And oftentimes, there are certain reasons why. And one of the biggest reasons is really that prepaid nature of the product. When somebody owns it, they're going to use it. And when they've really made that purchase and they've taken the time and they've invested their money into something, they want to use it and they want to come back. And if they've done it in Hawaii, for instance, they want to come back to Hawaii. You know, this is not something that they just can cancel like a hotel room. They're invested in their vacations and they're excited about coming back to places like Hawaii.
0: Well, you know, there was a time during the pandemic where I worried because I saw a
1: lot of uh, foreclosures.
0: Give us a snapshot, I guess, across the country during the pandemic. But what did we see there?
1: We saw a lot of people traveling. The one thing about the pandemic that we learned about the timeshare industry, when international travel, first of all, shut down and air travel became difficult if not impossible or at least it was questioned that people were a bit nervous to get on planes they took to the roads they decided to get in their cars they canceled perhaps a exchange that they had to go overseas in favor of a drive to destination timeshare owners went 8 to 10 hours even sometimes further away from their home base and were able to go to resorts that had outdoor activities beaches them have pools, skiing even, to the extent that the ski slopes are open in many places. They enjoyed the spacious accommodations that came along with the timeshare unit. I, myself, went on three different timeshare vacations in 2020 alone, all driving distance, and we utilized the kitchen probably more than we ever thought we would. It was always a nice bonus to have a kitchen to be able to have basics for breakfast or for snacks. This time around we used it as a gathering place. We continued to support local businesses, restaurants, and ordered in. We had our meals around the table where my family, along with my in-laws, along with other family members could be, enjoy food and the time together. And we really saw that there was a benefit to having our timeshare and a benefit that we, we really hadn't taken for granted, but we realized what a great option it was to have this type of accommodation so close. So we really what happened, the only thing that kept these owners from coming back to their timeshares, quite honestly, were restrictions that closed down occupancy in general.
0: Oahu has the largest number of timeshares, yeah, is that have,
1: right? Yeah, Oahu, both Kauai and Maui, and even the Big Island, you know, all of them have a significant amount of timeshare, about 100 resorts total that you have throughout the islands right now. And really during the pandemic, it was airlift primarily that kept the, the mainland visitor and also the visitors from overseas, Japan, China, and others that would normally come visit Hawaii away. During that time, you saw lots of locals take advantage of the time to stay at resorts or even spend time going from island to island. About 35, 37% occupancy throughout the pandemic through the for the lowest times of the pandemic. Even in 2020, when you thought things were the lowest, you still saw a number of people that were coming to the islands, which was great to see.
0: And so where we sit today?
1: We sit right about 93%. Which is we're we're back before the pandemic. I think we're at some. We saw that great demand that came back, and people wanting to come visit and take their vacations here.
0: No, we have yet to see the Japanese market bounce back. They've you know lifted the restrictions, but it's the the money. You know the exchange rate is still is still you know not good uh, for for the yen for folks coming over here. You now I did see a, a number of you know names in those foreclosures from people from Japan. I mean, so you know how are you looking at this time right now?
1: Yeah, it's difficult. There's There's no doubt that there are troubling economic times, and right now we do have some uncertainty. We can look to the past for a little bit of guidance. Back in 2008, 2009, typically there was a relatively low foreclosure rate for timeshares. People, once they bought it, they really didn't want to lose that money that they put into those vacations. It is unfortunate when you do see people in the foreclosures, and sometimes it's a little different even culturally as to what foreclosure means. And I've noticed that across the world, the idea of debt and others has different meanings in different cultures. But still, it's impossible to ignore. There were some difficult economic times, but even so, 2020 told us a story about people buying more of the product. And just to give you a bit of an example, in 2019, our research showed that there was $10.5 billion worth of timeshares sold in the United States. In 2020, that number was 4.9 billion. Normally, I'd say, wow, that, that's, that's a huge drop. Then if you look at it, a backdrop of the fact that nobody could really travel coming in international and there was still a limited amount of travel and occupancy that took place, it still showed that there was a lot of appetite for this product and for people to be able to uh, travel in these type of accommodations. If there was those foreclosures, it's sad, and it disheartens me to see that people were going through situations where they had to make decisions about their finances. It doesn't seem, though, that it's deterring others from continuing to buy or new purchasers to come try the product.
0: I did see uh, an ad in the paper recently, I think just this past weekend uh, from a company that was offering to help you extricate yourself if you had a timeshare contract?
1: Those do exist. And we have seen that over the past several years, companies that are trying to provide timeshare purchasers, maybe with a reason why they might want to get out of their timeshare. One thing we realize over the past several years, the industry has become much more active in helping timeshare owners who may have a situation where timeshare no longer meets their vacation needs. They could have had a situation much like we're seeing right now. There could be difficult economic times. Or it just might be, hey, it's time for me no longer to be an owner. We've used it, we're done, and we'd like to see our options. So we actually worked together with our major developer members of the trade association to create a website. It's called responsibleexit.com. And it's out there to be able to provide timeshare owners with resources resources about who to contact if they want to discuss their options. If they're interested in reselling their timeshare, where can they go? Where who are people that they can trust? And many times the options that are available to them, especially from their developers, they have free options if they want to give their timeshare back to their developer. If they're just they've they've they're used done. it, mm-hmm. they're done, they'd like a very trusted, safe, responsible way to exit, then the developers are there for them. And that's something that honestly, though, is just over the last five or six years has become something that the industry has become more aware of, which probably is a reason why it gave rise to these companies that we see advertising on TV or radio and otherwise, or in the newspaper, trying to get, you know, trying to mm-hmm. encourage timeshare owners to get out of their timeshare for their financial benefit. And then
0: what does the landscape look like uh, as far as, let's say, new timeshare properties? You know, I know Maui, you know, had some concerns about building new hotels and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing
1: as you mentioned maui's an area where we have a couple projects that are in development there are always places that are continuing to add more units we've got almost every one of our major members from hilton to marriott to Hyatt. A number of those, I know Hilton and Hyatt are developing on Maui. There's great construction that's going on there. And the great thing about the developers that are on island, and this is true for all the islands, there's great community involvement. And the community involvement, not only from the companies themselves, but the owners. And opportunities that these developers are providing to their owners when they're staying at their timeshare for them to actually be able to get involved in the community because that's so much in my opinion of what draws owners and draws people to the islands it's the community it is the feeling you get when you're here you can tell it from the residents and the locals and while we love it as a vacation destination we realize this is these are people's homes this is where they live this is where they work this is where they may have been for generations and that's something that we really don't take for granted
0: We've been hearing from Jason Gamble, President and CEO of the American Resort Development Association. We'll continue our conversation about the state of timeshares in Hawaii. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a break.
2: Support for HPR comes from Blues Bear Hawaii, presenting C.J. Chenier and the Red Hot Louisiana Band, February 23rd on Oahu, the 24th on Maui, and the 25th on Hawaii Island, bluesbearhawaii.com.
3: On the next Fresh Air, stories of life, death, healing, and frustration in hospital emergency rooms. Dr. Farzan Navi describes being on the front lines in the pandemic and improvising treatment and protection protocols, and in pre-COVID times trying to help patients in a healthcare system that too often lets them down. His new
2: book is Code Gray. Join us. Fresh Air, beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Alliance for Progressive Action, helping to train emerging civic leaders in Hawaii at its Kuleana Academy, accepting applications through March 31st for the next cohort. Application at hapahi.org.
0: Timeshares are a segment of our visitor industry that analysts say historically has been resilient, the way Tourism Authority regularly monitors the numbers. We talked with Artur President Jason Gammel, who was in town last week, about the rebound and the changing faces of timeshare owners. And how are you looking at this pushback from the local residents here? You know, they said 10 million visitors, that's way too much. We need to manage our numbers and make this work for us, not just for them.
1: We're very conscious about that, of of that sentiment that it comes from locals when they look at the tourism industry in general. It is, we realize that too from timeshare, when people actually own property, they own real estate here, they treat it a little differently than if they're just renters. When they're coming back year after year, there is more involvement, there is more care, there is... You know, they, are, they do pay a significant amount of taxes, for instance, whether they're real estate taxes or otherwise, that go to support local communities and support the, the support programs that the timeshare owner doesn't necessarily ever use or take advantage of every year. However, there does need to be balance, and I think it's always good to have the conversation about what's the right balance of tourists coming versus access to roads for locals, or the, to make sure that these the areas continue to remain pristine. That conversation always is gonna continue to take place, and I think it's a healthy one that, that takes place at the county level, and we're, we're part of that conversation in many instances. We participate, listen, and try to balance those demands. And
0: then, you know, the president in his speech the other day talked about oh he didn't like the resort fees getting the word out that you know they were watching
1: i don't know how that works when you're a timeshare operator in a resort normally once you purchase a timeshare you've got the purchase price and then there's an ongoing maintenance fee that somebody pays the maintenance fee goes to the to maintain and repair the resort and provide for all the amenities that are owned in common amongst all the owners It is rare that there's additional fees that are on top of that, for instance. Sometimes there can be parking, depending on the resort. Other times, there are no really additional fees that you'll see necessarily in the hotel world. It is, I think much of that tends to be a matter of disclosure, what information people have up front, and I believe that hospitality companies are doing a lot better job of being able to provide a consumer with the actual price of the accommodation at the end of the day. So there aren't any surprises when they show up. Okay. And that's just good business in our mind when you do that. I think some of the things, that I, and I listened to that, that part, of course, yes. <laughs> with, <laughs> with a lot of interest. And trying to get an idea for what it is that they're trying to get. And I think most of it, and I'm trying to read between the lines, it's mostly about people understanding their total financial obligation just like the same way Airbnb is moving to disclose all the cleaning fees and all the additional fees that take place, so that way there isn't a surprise when you think you're paying $200 a night, but it turns out to be $275 once mm-hmm. you add everything in there. I think that's just, for as a consumer, I, I like it. At the same time, I think there's some danger in the federal government dictating a lot of these type of policy decisions are coming directly from if they try to do it through regulatory agencies versus legislation i think that conversation is gonna you know gonna play on for a little while especially okay. in today's political environment yeah
0: i mean i just checked with i don't know if you met mufi hannam and he's head of the mm-hmm. tourism lodging and he just said look as mm-hmm. long as it's applied evenly across the board to all the hospitality you know industries and not you're not just, you know, coming down on the hotels. Yeah, I can appreciate
1: you. that. I, I think it's, again, it's a, it's a difficult, it's a difficult question, and I believe that there's no just one set easy answer for everybody. Right. We're very excited about the way that the timeshare owner has responded to coming back to Hawaii. We're excited about, It's a younger generation really? of owners, it is, it, it, it has changed over a lot of period of time. Right now, according to our research, about 57% of all timeshare owners are millennial or Gen Z. Really, 50% of timeshare owners? Yes. Yeah. so that was 39% come 2012. So we have seen a youth movement which is exciting to see. And I think that's largely attributed to the fact that the timeshare owner, especially that younger generation, had a chance to grow up in it. They got to see the product. They actually, yeah, yeah, with their parents. So they they had an understanding of what it was like and the benefits compared to staying in a hotel room. And they like it and decided either to buy themselves or maybe they inherited it from their parents or their parents gave it to them. And they continue to want to buy more. And that's a great thing to see from just the question that was always asked, well, how do you appeal to a younger generation? And one thing that I believe that appeals to a younger generation, they seem to be pretty consistent, especially when the younger generation has kids, has a family. All that space, the extra bedrooms the kitchen, the professional management. And I think that's something that people really enjoy versus other rental right, accommodations. Yeah, yeah. yeah, everyone, you, you know it's taken care of. You've got on-site security. You've got so many things that people find comforting when they're on vacation and don't want to have to think about. And that's one. The other, there's some really, I would say, great offerings by our members these days in the experiential travel So world. marketing. Yeah, they're, they're getting to really yeah. understand that The destination is great, the resort's fantastic, right? The accommodations are great. You've got all of the resort amenities that people are looking for. After that, though, people are looking for something to set themselves apart. Why do I want to come back here year after Mm -hmm. year after year? It's the experiences, and Hawaii has kind of known this. When you go to any island, there's some amazing experiences, whether it's- Different. Yeah, Yeah. experiencing nature. It is, of course, the water. There's so much that people can do here. But from coast to coast now, they're offering so many things that draw more people to the product, sports, culinary activities. With those kitchens I was just talking about, the chance to have private chefs come and do cookings right in your unit. Those are the type of things that people are looking for as part of that extra value for ownership, and a lot of our members are delivering.
0: Is that 50%? So that's... Nationwide,
1: 57, yep. 57 percent, yep.
0: And is that like a, a new trend? Like when did that start
1: to? It really started to tick up right in the mid, I'd say 2015, 2016. We saw the number starting to raise. It went, started in 2012. We were right around 39 mm-hmm. percent, slowly from 42 up to 46. And then we saw that number really crescendo towards, the, towards 2022. Not when the old the last fogies episode. anymore. The, you know, they're the <laughs> <laughs> it, it is certainly changing the faces around the pool.
0: And that was Jason Gammel of the American Resort Development Association, who was in town last week, talking about the rebound of the industry coming out of the pandemic restrictions. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz.
4: Nihoa, hoa,
5: oni o o oa, o molokai,
0: o o For today's Backyard Quiz, uh, we're asking you to go back to a time when King Kamehameha I ruled and whaling ships manned by crews from around the world regularly sailed into port. One sailor was a black man born into slavery in New York. He escaped enslavement, fled to Boston, and then shipped out to sea. He was a free man when he arrived in Hawaii with $130 in his pocket. His background as a cook and steward brought him to the attention of King Kamehameha. The sailor later befriended a, a high priest who gifted him with six acres of land in Waikiki. Uh, on his compound, he built multiple homes in addition to a blacksmith's shop, a storehouse, and even a hospital for six seamen. He also had a bowling alley and a grog shop. For today's Backyard Quiz, what's the name of this successful businessman who found freedom and prosperity here in Hawaii? Call call us at 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right scores an HPR reusable tote bag.
2: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing affordable housing for families, such as the Institute for Human Services. Nareedhawaii.com.
0: 911. You hope you don't have to make the call for help but when you do the operator on the other end can be your lifeline that's why there's a move to designate those jobs in the category of first responders like police and fire Fair reporter Sabrina Bowden here to talk about this
6: good morning good morning Catherine so at the state legislature this year there are two bills one would be to add emergency police dispatchers to the list of the state's first responders uh, this is a step that's also being taken at the federal level and there's a second bill that would separate dispatchers from its current collective bargaining unit and let them make their own so currently dispatchers are lumped in in unit three which is typically for clerical and secretarial work and LaKea chomslin is a city and county of honolulu communication dispatcher she's worked this job for about 20 years and here she shares some of what she sees daily
4: property crimes are kind of high here, you know, the stolen vehicles, the the criminal property damage, stuff like that. At least in my opinion, that has kind of ramped up for the years. Um, I know when I started, we took under a million calls per year. We're at about a million calls in our call center every single year now. It it is extremely busy. I want to say on a daily basis, more than 2,000 calls come to the dispatch center and we deal with from shooting and stabbings to crowing chickens. Um, The dispatch center, Um, I guess the city and the state haven't changed the rules of things that we have to process. We're very unique in our state where we process everything from parking complaints to noise complaints to burglaries to the major crimes. All of it comes through the center um, throughout the day. From the minute we start to the minute that we go home, 24 hours a day.
0: That's a high stress job. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately,
6: there's a dispatcher shortage across the state as well as nationally. And often dispatchers are required to work mandatory overtime to cover these shortages. The, level, the levels are pretty critical right now and typically a dispatcher is only earning about $23 an hour or $50,000 annually. And Greg Akimoto is an assistant chief with the Maui Police Department. He says the department is in favor of dispatchers creating their own collective bargaining unit. Uh, he says the wages just are not sufficient for the work that they do.
2: When you do call 911, the first person you speak to is not a police officer, it's not a fireman, it's not a medic, it's a a dispatcher. And they often take on the role of the emergency worker. So they are the true um, first responders. Uh, For us, my police department, we have 39 uh, positions. However, only 12 seats are filled, that's 30%. So we're currently working at a 70% vacancy. So um, it's a 24 hour, 365 day. Operation. Um, you know, last year alone, uh, our dispatchers answered 163,774 administrative calls in addition to 124,457 911
0: calls. That vacancy rate is so high,
6: mm-hmm. and there's no doubt that dispatchers do very critical emergency work. So there's generally a lot of support for this Senate Bill 1059, which is for the first responder designation. But the bill that would help them create their own collective bargaining unit is facing a little bit of pushback. Uh, There's a couple Uh, collective bargaining bills this session so the state's Office of Collective Bargaining as well as the City and County of Honolulu are both opposed to this measure. Representative Scott Marioshi chairs the House's Committee on Labor and he says there needs to be a good reason for any creation of a new unit so at the hearing for this bill House Bill 1398 he opened up the floor to anybody to come to him with ideas to try and set a standard.
7: There are a lot of bargaining unit bills coming through this year and last year, and I assume in the years to come. Uh, This chair's concern is that we are gonna keep making new bargaining units until we have 100 bargaining units, and I do not want that. We need an objective rule for why one class of workers deserves a separate bargaining unit that applies to all workers, not just their particular class. Until I hear that rule, I am not inclined to make any new bargaining units. I am open to ideas. If you can come to me with an objective rule, and I've told all the other bargaining units this, if you can come to me with an objective rule that makes sense for everyone, I'll listen, but I have not heard that rule yet, and no one has taken me up on my offer. So I am gonna keep this moving for the purposes of discussion, but unless I hear some kind of objective rule that makes sense, I, I, I'm just saying, I don't think this bill is gonna to move too far.
6: So both bills um, are waiting to be heard by their final committees and their respective houses at this moment.
0: Yeah, you know, I recall a time when the lifeguards, you know, ocean safety folks, mm-hmm. uh, a push uh, to, you know, get them into a, a, I think, in the category of, you know, those first responders, right? Because I think they were initially with clerks as well.
6: Mm-hmm. And that push happened only a few years ago. And that the conversations are kind of similar to what's happening now that we recognize that these are people who do a lot of the emergency work and work alongside emergency first responders. It's just kind of breaking apart at this point
0: yeah and uh yeah it, it you know I, mean, I think with the lifeguards there was a national shortage for those jobs and now a national shortage for radio dispatchers so w- mm-hmm. we'll see what happens on the federal level hopefully uh, they can get that designation and maybe what you can be a state that's on the forefront of that all right well thank you so much sabrina we have been talking to HR sabrina bowden uh she had a look at a couple of bills affecting emergency Disp- Radio dispatchers. You can check out her story on hawaiipublicradio.org. Public Civil Beats Reality Check today is about a story that uh, uh, and a push to make the legislative session full time. Reporter Blaze Lovell joins us to talk about this. Good morning, Blaze. Good morning, Catherine. So, yeah, so what? Should we have year round session? <laughs> What's the buzz? Well, that,
3: well, well, that's one of the big questions. Of course, it'll keep folks like us employed permanently, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it would also, you know, change. Employment rules for state lawmakers, uh, one of the biggest changes proposed right now in Senate Bill 149, it would actually ban lawmakers from having outside employment. You know, right now they can have side jobs, and many of them do. They're lawyers, um, you know, contractors. They do work outside of the legislature. Under this bill, that would be banned. On top of that, the legislature would be required to meet at least uh, once monthly. And so in that regard, it would sort of make them a little bit like uh, the county councils. And that was, uh, this bill is from Senator Stanley Chang, who's a former councilman uh, in Honolulu. And that's sort of the idea is that he'd like to make it a little bit more like the county councils, give people more time to deliberate over bills and, and hear them and hash out all the details that sometimes, you know, uh, our policymakers don't necessarily have. Um, all the time they want in our four month session
0: yeah and you know your story points out that you know Stanley Chang was really struck when he went over to the big house you know because it's I think the line was it's four months of chaos it was very striking he said
3: yeah he he did describe it as chaos and you know as someone who's worked in the building for a while now it can certainly (laughs) feel like that sometimes you know there's there's a lot that they need to do and not a lot of time Um, you know, they only have about a week to introduce bills. And Chang said that means they end up kind of just dumping the kitchen sink in and just throwing in everything. And that's how we end up with about 3,000 bills that we've got to rain through every year. And that, and only about 10% of all of that actually passes and becomes law and is signed by the governor at the end. And throughout the four months, you know, there's these really um, uh, uh, tight bill deadlines that, they need to get um, through the different committees like the triple referral deadline, the lateral deadline, the decking deadline. This is sort of to make sure the process keeps moving right but it, it also sort of makes it difficult you know if you're dealing with a really um, difficult policy issue to craft it in a way and hear all the uh, uh, all the input that you may want to whereas on the city council and this is the example that Chen used you know if two people have a dispute over a bill or two parties or two organizations you know they can take a month off they can talk about it they can hash out their differences well you're come back the next month re- a resolution so, mm-hmm.
0: yeah yeah and your story points out too you know about the 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 salary costs right the adjustment that might have to come as well
3: yeah that's sort of one of the big questions about this is how much is it going to cost taxpayers and will lawmakers need to be paid more since now they're technically, you know, full time, full time. A lot of other states like Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, obviously they're larger states, but they pay their lawmakers, you know, much, much more than we do.
0: So, uh, what are the chances of this thing advancing?
3: Well, Chang's introduced this before, and it, it hasn't gone anywhere. It's chances of really passing. It's a, you know, it's a bit of a long shot bill. It not only needs to get passed the Senate. It also needs to pass the House. Even if it makes it all that way, which the chances of that happening are really slim, it has to be voted on by voters uh, next year. And, um, you know, trying to convince people that their lawmakers should be meeting all the time, uh, that might be a hard sell.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is interesting, though, to see how many lawmakers go back and forth between the city council uh, and the legislature. So, yeah, I kind of wonder if he'd have more company.
3: (laughs) Right And between their jobs and ethics officials here, that's what they sort of like about this bill is the ban on outside employment. It could eliminate you know potential conflicts of interest. But a lot of lawmakers like the idea of having a quote unquote citizen legislature. Uh, former rep Ray Graty said that during a recent meeting, he said that you know this proposal flies in the face of uh, what the framers of our constitution originally intended.
0: And uh, what about the uh, ethics commission?
3: The Ethics Commission debated this. You know, some of them said that if it is year-round then you've got to have term limits so that people don't become professional lawmakers. Others didn't like the idea, you know, of, of like I said, banning outside employment or having the legislature meet year-round. In the end, uh, the Ethics Commission, which typically weighs in on bills like this, they decided to not take a stance on it.
0: Hmm. Well, I guess we'll just have to wait and see if this question ever comes up uh, before the voters. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, Blaze. Thanks, Adam. We've been talking to uh, Blaze Level uh, for today's reality check. You can read his story online at civilbeat.org.
2: Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Richardson School of Law. Its Master of Laws provides specializations in environmental, international, and other fields for attorneys from the U.S. and around the world. Law.hawaii.edu.
6: HPR's final in person concert in its Mele Hawaii series with Galliard String Quartet and Raiatea Helm is sold out. This intimate performance of Queen Liliʻuokalani's compositions will be recorded for a later broadcast. For alerts on future concerts at our Atherton studio, sign up for a free newsletter at hawaiipublicradio.org, sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets.
0: This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. HBR's Dave Lawrence is joined by astronomer Christopher Phillips. They have an update on a meteor strike that shook southern Texas. Here's your Monday Stargazer.
8: Stargazer Time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny planet and also things we can try and spot in our island skies. As usual, we are fortunate to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips, and he's on the line right now. Chris, welcome back, and what
5: is in store this week? Hey Dave, it's good to be back. So this week's stargazers, the planet Venus can be seen in the western sky after sunset. It is one of the brightest objects in the sky, and is very easy to spot. The moon this week is approaching its first quarter phase, meaning sky brightness will be great for stargazing.
8: Now, I understand you've got an update on some exciting news that happened recently where a uh, meteor exploded somewhere?
5: Yes. Last week, a mysterious boom was heard in the skies above southern Texas. The source was a meteor, and it's not clear at this time whether any of the meteor made it to the ground. Residents of the lower Rio Grande area were raffled by the loud explosion and following shockwaves that were powerful enough to be picked up by both weather instruments and seismic survey instruments. Thankfully, nobody was hurt, and there appears to be no damage to any structures or ecosystems.
8: Wow, coming on the anniversary of the Shiblinks meteor in
5: Russia, too, huh? Yeah, almost to the day. On February 13, 2013, a meteor exploded over the Russian city of Shiblinks, causing damage to buildings, blowing out windows and sending over 1,500 people to the hospital. Mm. The Texas meteor, however, was far less powerful. And give us an idea how powerful it was, Chris. Well, the explosion is thought to be the equivalent of around eight tons of TNT, Mm. which is quite tame in terms of a meteor strike. But had this hit an urban area, the damage would have been catastrophic.
8: And what's your read on these? Is this going to start happening more often? We got to get some heavy
5: duty umbrellas into the picture or what? (laughs) No, no, I really wouldn't worry about it impacts from space are a very real threat But thankfully they are infrequent enough to not be a cause of everyday worry In fact crossing the road is statistically far more dangerous and
8: back to the meteors most of these uh, Because of the planet's surface largely covered by water. They just go into the ocean. Yeah,
5: yeah, absolutely Our saving grace may be the fact that the ocean takes a lot of the heat in terms of asteroid strikes Also large impacts like the ones that kill the dinosaurs are incredibly rare and we have very effective asteroid spotting telescopes, such as PanStars atop Haleakala, whose job it is to help us find and track any potential threat.
8: And we know you'll be reporting on it, if there's time to, that is. (laughs) (laughs) It's Christopher Phillips and uh, another fun Stargazer. Thank you. You You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. You can catch Stargazer at
2: HawaiiPublicRadio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at HaleakalaRanch.com.
0: Time now for your backyard quiz answer. We asked you about a man born into slavery in New York. As a young man, he picked up medical skills in places where injured sailors and sea captains recovered on shore. In 1799, at the age of 24, he escaped, ran away to sea, and by 1820, had become a well-known businessman in Hawaii. He was acquainted with King Kamehameha I. He commanded the respect of the local community. On his Waikiki property, he constructed multiple homes, a hospital for American seamen, and he built Hawaii's first bowling alley. He's also credited with building a school and constructing the first carriage road up Manoa Valley. He married a Hawaiian woman and had three children. He made a home and lived a life of prosperity and freedom, and he never returned to the United States. The name of this successful businessman, Anthony Allen, who the Hawaiians call Alani. And our winner today, Winnie uh, Waikatsuki Patterson from Pearl City. You got it right. If you have an idea for a quiz, uh, write to talk back at HawaiiPublicRadio.org. You know it takes a
6: lot of kissing. Tell me about it. To make a romance.
0: In recognition of Black History Month, we continue to look at the role black people have played in Hawaii's history. Today, Hawaii Pacific University history professor Allison Goff turns a spotlight on World War II and some 30,000 African Americans in the islands. She spoke with the conversation Stephanie Hahn about how their experience of hospitality in island culture led many to take part in the civil rights movement on the continent after the war.
9: Most African-American troops in uh, World War II were in non-combatant positions uh, and they were in all theaters of war but because they were largely in non-combatant positions we don't read a lot about them. We read a little bit about the famous right African-American combat groups including the Harlem Hellfighters who spent some time in these islands as well but the vast majority of African-American troops in World War II at least from history's point of view are kind of invisible and so part of my task has been to uncover that. They were deployed throughout the Pacific theater of war. And in order to get to many areas where they were either fighting or they were acting in support roles, they had to pass through um, Honolulu and through the Hawaiian islands. And Hawaii, of course, has been an important you know, military base for the U.S. since the late 19th century, really, even, even before annexation. So about 30,000 African-American troops were either stationed here or they passed through the islands. And that's an enormous number, uh, considering that our best estimate, and it is really an estimate, is that probably only 200 people of African descent lived in the Hawaiian Islands before World War II. And how do you think their presence affected the local population? black Africans or Africans have um, been living in or come through Hawaii for centuries and we have documented examples of that and, and probably before we have documented examples as well because a lot of African born people who um, found themselves in the, in the United States you know, sought to escape slavery and, and Jim Crow by signing up for the Merchant Navy, particularly the whaling and generally it seems uh, that people of African descent were welcomed and treated very well by the, uh, the by the local population at least at first when african american troops moved here in world war II, local organizations put on events for them dances social events and there was a good deal of kind of intermingling with the with the population as time went on in Hawaii, relationships changed, largely because af- as African American troops are coming in, so are non African American troops, yes, white troops, are coming in. We see an importation of mainland racial attitudes, mm-hmm. uh, just like you were importing food or a- any other mm-hmm. sort of baggage that comes when people move. And so the relationship between African American troops and local people began to, I guess, sour. Uh, a little bit but in part that was because the local population was bombarded uh, with a barrage of negative imagery about African Americans and the mainland attitudes and structures uh, were attempted to be imported into Hawaii segregation basically. So in Being other words what you're saying is they had more free movement mm-hmm. the black troops here in Hawaii than they did on the U.S. mainland mm-hmm. so yeah. they were not as segregated here is that correct? I mean yeah the segregated within the military, and there are attempts to segregate black troops when they come here. For example, you know, Hotel Street, the entertainment district in World War Two, and we see certain forms of entertainment there eventually being segregated, or at least having separate entrances for white and black troops. We know, of course, Hotel Street was the big prostitution zone in World War Two, and so brothels eventually became segregated, for example, and they tried to segregate other forms of entertainment as well. And this is a pattern, you know, that you see in Hawaii and you see elsewhere where African-Americans get deployed in World War II. Yeah. So there was, in other words, a small number of these soldiers mm-hmm. who rebelled against oh, yeah. the segregated. Yeah, troop. absolutely. And it could be refusing to salute white officers uh, on the streets of Ho- uh, of Chinatown, uh, refusing to move out of the way for uh, subordinate white troops. And these were ways that, you know. Seem very small to us, but they refused to engage in these, you know, racial protocols, and it led to several fights, um, which were not initiated by the Harlem Hellfighters, but they said we didn't initiate fights, but we never backed down. You know, these little things like this are very serious acts of protest uh, by um, African Americans because the penalties could have been, you know, incarceration or even execution. Now that tended not to happen in Hawaii I mean, and I think that speaks to the more, you know, flexible racial arrangements here. But it nevertheless, it was a big step even to take those very small acts of resistance. Now, if things were segregated like that for the black troops, mm-hmm. how did they navigate then with the local mm-hmm. Asian Pacific Islander population? Mm-hmm. How were they received? There was it seems, a great deal of interracial dating. It seemed to be quite acceptable for African-American troops and members of the uh, Hawaiian population or Asian population here to engage in dancing, which, you know, that was not permissible for white and black troops on the mainland, at least in the the South, and was a complete taboo. We have examples of troops being invited into people's homes and sharing food. In other words, the kind of extension, right, of of hospitality that was Traditional, in the islands, basically. Yeah. How might Hawaii then have affected how they negotiated once they went back to the mainland? Well, that's a really, really good question. And I think, like in you know World War One, when African Americans are deployed abroad, so in World War I, it was largely to France and the European mainland. First of all, they get the sense that there is an alternative model of interracial relations. That what is going on in the mainland. United States is not the norm. And so you bring back with you, right, a sense of disquiet, right? And that motivates you to do something. We can trace the activities of people who were enlisted in World War II, who were deployed to foreign um, fields of operation, come back and kind of take up the mantle. They join the NAACP. They organize a lot of what we see in the 1950s and 1960s. They become civil uh, rights leaders. So there's this kind of intellectual, experiential Mm -hmm. uh, part of it that leads them. Uh, to act. There's some kind of practical training that goes on in World War II that has a direct impact on what they're going to do in the 1950s and 1960s. I first came across this Really interesting case in the archives of the NAACP, and I found a mention of a mutiny in Hawaii in 1944. And I thought, well, there's what is this? And of course, you know, when you think mm-hmm. mutiny, I don't know, I still get 19th century pirates yeah, and whatever and in bullet, my bounty, mind. Right. <laughs> but this was uh, an act by African American troops that was classified as an act of mutiny by the U.S. U.S. military. So I started to look into this, and this act of mutiny was committed by uh, a group of African American soldiers of the 1320th General Services Regiment, Company E, that were stationed at what is now Bellows. And the short story here is on the 31st of July in 1944 they were called out to go to work and their work at this time was to go and uh, stack pieces of salvaged lumber at a l- l- yard 2A which was on Alamoana Boulevard and they'd right. have to travel all the way from Bellows around the coastal road right. in those days, 50 minutes to get there. So they get called out they're usually put on buses and, and trucks. and the, So the commanding officer calls them to come out and less than a quarter of the men turn out to go to work. And there's a repeated calls for them to come, to come out. Eventually they are forced out onto the parade ground, told to go back, get their kits and come back out. And again, they don't come back out. A Few soldiers get on the buses and then those who do are pelted with rocks. And then there's like a two hour melee at Bellows Air Force Base. The Benlay is put down. There's an investigation after this for two weeks, and then 69 men of Company E are arrested and charged with mutiny. They are found guilty, they are dishonorably discharged, and they are given 15 years hard labor. And so what I discovered in the course of this is is that uh, for the month prior to that, the workers at the lumber yard, I found the records of how many pieces of lumber they stacked each day. In the days before the 31st of July, so on the, the 26th of July, the n- amount of lumber stacked was normal. Then the next day it fell by 50%. And then that fell by a 30 60%. And only the day before the mutiny, they stacked only four pieces of lumber in the entire oh, shift. Okay. So, you know, I began to think this looks like a protest. Right. This yes, looks like the traditional go slow, right, mm-hmm. that you saw during yes. the days of slavery. And I'm interested in those sorts of sorts of continuities. So I look into that, and I find out that what is happening is this. Company E were um, unusual in the sense that at the start of their mobilization, all of their officers were black. And this was unusual, but the decision had been largely by the U.S. military that black troops needed white officers, and they needed 50 percent more white officers than white troops because, according to interwar studies, African-Americans could not fight, and they were were not leaders, um, and of, of course this was all contrary to right. what had happened in World War One. Most black units were staffed with white officers. Well, Company E wasn't, and at first, all of its officers were actually black. Um, In the course of reading the trial transcripts and looking at the defense, the defense pointed out that over the course of 1944, gradually, all of the black officers from Company E had been moved out. And so there'd been a series of of petitions to say, please don't do that. Even the remaining black officers had protested this. But nevertheless, this went ahead. And this was generally in line with a war directive at the time that had decided, well, this was not working. Um, and that we can't have white and black officers because that had happened at, uh, at Freeman Field, and there'd been a mutiny there because they still segregated facilities. So we're not we're not going to try this here in Hawaii. So we're going to replace them with white officers. Now the U.S. military's philosophy at the time was that black troops needed white officers and then they needed white officers who knew right black troops and black people right and so what that meant was that they preferred southern white officers right yes. to be here and so the black officers were replaced from southern white officers and some of them came from some of the most egregiously discriminatory and I will use the word vicious right training camps mm-hmm. from the south of the US mm-hmm. so this in part seems to have been what triggered right these acts right. of defiance which culminated in the mutiny there was a long trial like i said they were all found guilty after the war the decision was reversed but all of these soldiers were still dishonorably dischar- discharged and from they the military. did they have to serve the prison term they they for did they years. did not, because after the war, the NAACP looked at a number of similar right cases like this, um, and managed to get some of these um, kind of overturned. But uh, this was the first kind of incident I'd seen at this, and it led me then to look at other acts of what the U.S. military called acts of riot and mutiny mm-hmm. across uh, the U.S. and indeed across the globe, because World War II was a global war, and you see this happening, you know, everywhere.
0: That was HPU Professor Allison Goff talking with HPR Stephanie Hahn about a significant protest by black soldiers that took place on Oahu and why Hawaii's local culture affected race relations on the continent in the 1940s and 50s. <laughs> Well, that wraps it up for us today. Tomorrow, we plan to check in with Congressman Jill Takuda. Got questions or feedback for? Call call our Talk Back line at 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the Conversation podcast online or on on our website or on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the Conversation.